Well, good morning, Calvary Baptist Church. Uh, I'm going to set these over here. What would happen is I'd knock one on the floor, and microphones aren't cheap, I know that, and Chris and the guys would not like me for that. Would you, Chris? (laughs) Anyway, I used to run sound. I know that stuff is, if you're a sound guy, it matters. Um, So it's our our privilege, my wife and I, to be with you this morning, and uh, we're just thankful uh, as we've had opportunities to come to Calvary to be with you and uh, to worship the Lord together. I I hope you don't take that for granted, the the effort that's put into this worship service. Boy, it's a blessing to sing with people that know the Lord and love to sing and uh, to praise his name. Well, uh, this morning, we're going to be in uh, John chapter 17. Uh, We're going to focus in on verse 20 to 23. Um, I'm calling this that they all may may be one. Um, We're going to talk about unity uh, when we get there. Um, but I wanted to, before, to, to help to set this up a little bit, um, to define, I've got four words here that I want to define that John uses in the Gospel of John. You, they show up in the epistles that he wrote also. But John uses some terms, and it can be helpful if we understand as we're reading John's Gospel, and they show up particularly, remember John 17 is Jesus' prayer, and uh, they show up in this prayer. And so it can be helpful to understand these terms, Uh, uh, and so I'll get to those. If we uh, are mindful of the fact, John 17, Jesus' prayer to his Father in, in, in very many ways, this is the true Lord's Prayer. Be mindful of the fact that in a few hours, Jesus is going to be killed in a brutal way for the sin of the world. In just a matter of a handful of hours, His disciples are going to all flee. Peter will deny him with a curse. He's going to be brutally murdered. It's going to be agonizing. This is the mind of the Savior when he kneels to pray. And he's with his men. Maybe as he kneels, maybe his hand is right out here on the shoulder of Peter who's going to deny him with a curse in just a few hours. And he prays to his father. And I'll read the chapter here, um, and then uh, I want to define these uh, terms for us, and then we'll spend a few, few minutes looking at Jesus' prayer for our unity. And so let me read John chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. This is the end of the upper room discourse. When this is done, they're headed across the Kidron, and he's going to be betrayed. And so Jesus kneels to pray. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father... The hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything 
you have given me is from you, for the words which you gave me I have given to them. And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are, while I was with them. I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even, though I, even as I am not of the world." I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you, you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them and will make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. The incredible, powerful prayer of our Lord in some of his final moments with his men. In just a little while, they're all going to betray him. And how do you, I, I thought, well, maybe I'll just read a section, but it's like, how do you uh, abbreviate and cut a section out of that prayer? And so I wanted to read the whole thing for us to get the context and the heart of our Lord where he prays for the preservation and the unity of the saints and the protection of his men. And it wasn't keep them so much from bodily harm, but keep them in your name, keep them faithful to you. That was Jesus' prayer for his men. So four terms. The, the first one that I have for us is the word world, or it's cosmos in the original. But John uses the word world in at least three different ways. And it's helpful when you're reading in John's gospel to understand that he uses this word in different ways. And so uh, the first one, if we look in uh, 17 verse 5, 
Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. The glory which I had with you before the world was. That term world there refers to the created order, the glory that I had with you before the creation existed. So there, cosmos, world, refers to the created order. Go to 17, verse 9, and you see, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all things that are mine are yours, and he goes on. I do not ask on their behalf, I, I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world. I do not ask on behalf of the created order. Well, of course it doesn't mean that. I do not ask on behalf of the rest of mankind. He is here, he says, I'm praying for these, I, I ask on their behalf. He's praying for these men. He's praying for the 11 specifically. And I'm not, right now, I'm not praying for the rest of mankind. So there, the word world refers to humanity, mankind. One other place, verse 14, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. They are not of the world. So they are not of humanity or the created order. Well, of course they are. They are not uh, of the world. They are not of the fallen, sinful world system. So in this context, they are not of the created order. Well, of course they are. They are not of humanity. Of course they are. But they are not of the evil, fallen world system. So we have at least three ways that John uses that word, and it can be helpful when you're reading in the book of John to ask, what does he mean here in this verse by that word, uh, to get to, to draw out the meaning of that text. There's another one. Jesus, uh, in this prayer, he mentions your name or the name of God. We'll just give an example here in verse 6. I have manifested your name to the men who you gave me out of the world. And down in verse 11, I am no longer in the world, yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name. The name, what's he talking about there? Well, in Scripture, uh, the, the name is the revelation of God's nature. Think about it, particularly in the Old Testament, multiple names of God given in the Old Testament. Now, maybe one that comes to mind right away is the word Yahweh or Jehovah. Remember Moses. When I go and they ask me who sent me, uh, what do I say? Tell them I am. I am that I am. Tell them I am sent you. The God who is, Yahweh, comes to mind. That's one name. And it tells us about the nature. I am the God who is. There's another example. There's many, but we'll take one more. Uh, in Genesis 12, you remember uh, Abraham went up on the mountain with Isaac to sacrifice Isaac. And he goes and he, everything's prepared and Isaac is bound. He's laid on the wood and he's ready to slay his son and the Lord calls out from heaven and stops him. And he provides in the thicket a ram. And Isaac, imagine the celebration they had, dad and son. They take that ram and they sacrifice it and worship God together there. Right in there, you'll see where a, a name of God is is given, Yahweh Yira, or maybe Jehovah Jireh is the one we're familiar with, but God will see to it. God will see to it. God is a God of prevision. He sees everything that can be, would be, or could be, and will be, 
And he's a God of provision. He provides. God will see to it. You see how the name of God reveals his nature of God. When Jesus said, keep, keep them in your name, that's what he's talking about. Keep them within who you are. Keep them within your name. Then there's glory. Glory. Jesus, uh, in multiple references here, talks about the glory uh, of God, where he's been glorified on earth in verse 4. I glorified you, talking about the Father. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me. Then verse 5, now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you. Glory, what is the glory of God? And it's an important question. We think about it, or we sing about it often. And uh, we, we talk about what is glorify God. Well, one definition, this is John Stott, to reveal or manifest God. Anything that reveals or manifests God, that's the glory of God. And on a day like this, when we were driving this morning in the sunshine in Michigan, we celebrate the sun because we don't see it much. When we do, it's a big deal. What a beautiful winter morning, though. That's the glory of God on display, the reflecting on the snow and that, those kinds of things. So to reveal or manifest God, uh, John Piper, retired pastor, he says the beauty of the full panorama of his perfections, all of the perfections of God, that's the glory of God. And it, it's put on display. Uh, and so... Uh, the glory of God is put on display through the perfections of God, and that's where the names of God even come in because they reveal characteristics about who the living God is, and it all speaks to his glory. And you think of the Lord Jesus when he was on the earth. Everything he did was for the glory of God. And he makes bread with his hands and feeds 5,000 men plus women and children, thousands. And how did he do that? What's the glory of God? It's the power of God. Walks on the sea. And the glory of God is on display. Lazarus, come forth. And the glory of God is on display. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And the glory of God is on display. Last one. Truth. John uh, mentions truth in several places uh, in his book. Uh, Jesus, in this prayer, mentions truth. Truth. What is truth? It's pretty important today. To know what is truth. And it's something that's not agreed on, right? Commonly, what's true and what's not true. Your truth and my truth and all the things that, that we can say. Truth. Well, one definition is truth is that which conforms to what is. To what is. If it, if it conforms to what is, this is a table. And if we can agree on that that is a table, that's a true statement, right? It, it conforms to what is. The problem, contemporary Society is agreeing on what is means. What is, is. Uh, and, and without going too far afield, but the, 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 the nature of reality. So that doesn't seem adequate. So another one might be uh, truth is that which uh, conforms to what God knows. God knows everything. So whatever God knows, God knows all truth. So truth is what conforms to what God knows. God's aware of all lies also. That doesn't make lies true. God, though, can discern the difference between truth and error, and so God knows all truth. Truth is what God knows. But maybe more helpfully for us, what is truth? Where do we find truth? Well, expressions of the nature and being of God 
specifically all that the Father gave Jesus to say while on earth, along with all that the New Testament writers would record in the coming years, this in addition to the law, the prophets, and the writing right there, the Word of God, that's truth. Now you have a basis to define the foundation of reality and a system of thought to define what life is. That's truth. That's the foundation. And what's happened in our day, hundreds of years ago, it's been a process. But in our day, the foundation or the basis of truth is what is lost and what has been debated. So I've mentioned, I think, uh, uh, last summer when I was here, uh, a Reformed theologian, Carl Truman, and I referenced an article that he wrote. Well, there's a book that he did um, about a year and a half ago. It came out. It's a Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. It's, it's very dense reading. Unless you're really into it, don't bother buying it. But it's, it's very interesting if you can struggle through it. He gives a history of thought starting in about the 1600s of different key thinkers, and he draws it all the way up to today, and we find out from his analysis how it is that a person can say, I'm a man trapped in a woman's body or I'm a woman trapped in a man's body and actually believe that it's true. Because the foundation for truth is lost in a popular worldview. It's very interesting. See, these things that seem to be changing quickly, the basis or what that's based on has been happening over hundreds of years and now there are changes that are coming upon us quickly, but it didn't just start yesterday. It's very interesting. The nature of truth. So world or cosmos, your name, glory, truth. Important phrases or words in the Gospel of John, particularly in Jesus' prayer here. So now let's zero in a little bit. Uh, from verse 20 to verse 23, let's look a little bit. Jesus' prayer, one of the focal points of his prayer is the unity of the saints. And so look at verse 22. The glory which you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one, just as we are one. Back up to verse 20. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who believe on me through their word. Zero in on that term, word. What is their word? Well, go to uh, chapter uh, 17, verse 6. I have manifested your name to the men. Verse 8. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them, that, and they received them and truly understood that I came from you. Verse 14, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. And then verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Those who will believe on me through their word, what's he talking about? He's talking about the word of God, the word of the apostles. And he says, I do not ask on those alone, but those who will believe on me through their word, through the preached word, through what has been revealed, what Jesus taught his disciples, 
what they recorded in the New Testament writing under inspiration, another place in John, uh, Jesus mentions to his men that the Holy Spirit will come upon you and he will bring to memory everything that I have told you. We wonder, how did they write all this stuff? Well, the Holy Spirit brought to memory everything that Jesus told them and then they taught it. Here's some examples. 1 John 1, verse 3. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. This is John again in his epistle. As he, uh, well, in the writing of 1 John, probably somewhere around A.D. 90, maybe 55 or 60 years after Jesus left, he said, we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. Fulfilling exactly what Jesus prayed for his men right here in, in verse 20. Here's another example in Acts chapter 2. Uh, this uh, is Peter at the end of his sermon. So then those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Now look, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers, continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Jesus prayed that, uh, that he's praying for those who would believe on me through their word. And here's one other example. This is Paul talking to the Ephesians in chapter 2, 19 and 20, talking to the, uh, particularly the Gentiles, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. We're talking about here in verse 20 about a basis for unity, and the basis for unity is the apostles' teaching. It's the word of God. That's the basis of our unity. There's nothing else. Not at the bottom. Our unity is centered in what God said, based on the apostles' teaching, the writing of the prophets, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that's where our unity is based. So let's uh, work on defining a definition of unity a little bit then. So we've, we've given the first part, I think, in shared apostolic truth. So a unity in the truth that spans the ages from the inception of the church at Pentecost to today it's a unity that extends beyond the borders of denominations, enters into every group that proclaims as truth the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the only way for sins to be forgiven and all around the world today, maybe right at this very moment, the word of God is being preached in all kinds of churches. They're not all just like us, but they're preaching the same gospel and the same message that has the same impact in the lives of people. So there's the first part of our definition of uni unity is shared apostolic truth. But then, uh, let's read verse 21 and 22. That they all may be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given them, I have, uh, have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them. The unity of the church is 
uh, is first unity between its people is not first unity, but is people. But instead, it's first and foremost, it's a unity with the apostles and their understanding of the gospel given by Christ. It's also our individual oneness with the Father and Son, that they may be in us as I am in you. There's a, the theologians will talk about this, but the interpenetration of the persons of the, of the Trinity that are so interpenetrated with one another that they are literally one, one God, three persons. Jesus prays here that they may be in us, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they literally, within the life of God, that his people would draw so close that they're literally unified totally with God. And then he, he, he makes that great statement, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them. We could ask that question, what is the greatest glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. The greatest glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about it. The one who will be, uh, who has been exalted to the Father's right hand and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess on heaven, on earth, and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What is the greatest glory of the Lord Jesus Christ? It's the cross cross where he comes and takes on humanity and is brutally and barbarically killed and then the divine anathema uh, that he that is put upon him the condemnation that we deserve that he takes on our behalf and the glory of Christ is the father accepts that sacrifice and he's resurrected to life and ascends to heaven at the right hand of the father and everything bows the knee to Christ the glory that you have given me, I've given them. We literally share in the glory of the resurrected Christ. It's amazing. I don't deserve to live, let alone in any way partake in the glory of the resurrected Christ. In Romans 8, Paul talks about this a little bit. For you have not received a spirit of slavery, leaving to fear it again. But you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God and of children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we also may be glorified with him. We partake in the glory of, of the living Christ. And it's all centered around a shared apostolic truth, the Word of God, and it's shared around a shared divine life, that is, rebirth, newness in Christ, so that we enter into the very life of Christ Himself as he's resurrected and, and, and there's that picture that Paul paints of us dying with him and being raised with him to newness of life. And so our unity, a definition of that unity is shared apostolic truth, shared divine life, rebirth. And then there's a goal. Why unity? Why is it such a big deal? Look at verse 23. I in them and you in me 
that they may be perfected or completed in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as... Ever lose your place? Even as you have loved me. Let me read that verse again. I and them, you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as I, uh, as you have loved me. So that the world may know that you sent me. Why unity? So the world may know that you sent me. Go back to verse uh, 21, right at the end of uh, verse 21. He, he prays that they also may be in us. Why? So that the world may believe you sent me. So that the world may know. As was, it was already stated there in verse 21, Jesus repeats it there in verse 23. And so the very prayer of Christ is that the visible unity of his church would be such that those outside the church would see it and be challenged by the truth and beauty of the gospel. The unity of the church is what puts the gospel on the display and says it's true. And when we fight or when we bicker or the other things that we can all, I'm talking from my own life, the things that we can fall into, we literally are denying the gospel of Christ when we do that. And unity puts the gospel on display. So, so Christian unity is centered around agreement with apostles, their teaching and doctrine, unity with the final Father and the Son, and the final outworking will be a true testimony to a watching world that Jesus is Lord and Savior. And doesn't our world need that today? especially in the divisive times in which we live. Another example going on there in Ukraine, right? Um, one of our guys at church is a, a field director for SEND International, and so Carl, uh, his uh, area, happen, Ukraine, happens to be all the missionaries there report to him, and they've moved all their missionaries from Kiev and other places to the western side, so they're an hour from the Polish border if they have to get out. Some of them have decided though they're staying behind in Kiev because there are churches there, and there are people there that there are men who still want to be taught in seminary, even though they're under fire. And so these guys stayed behind, and we're going to teach them. We talk about unity. There are people who love to that degree and love the saints. So there's some, a lot more here in Jesus' prayer, but the focus for us today is on unity. Let's, uh, let's look at a little bit of application. I have three, three points for us in that. And uh, the first one is, and I put these as questions, as I often do, not always, but often. So here's the question. Do you know the only true and living God, specifically, do you know him in the person of Jesus Christ? John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Do you know Jesus as Lord and as Savior? Otherwise, everything else that we've talked about and will talk about has little value to you outside of Christ. It's of minor use. 
unless you can answer the affirmative, do you know the only true and living God specifically in the person of Jesus Christ? That would be a goal or a desire of our hearts for everyone here and online, those that may be watching or will watch, is that you know Christ. He's our only hope. And in this great prayer, he shares his heart with us for us and for his glory. Do you know Christ? Number two, can you say that you love the saints? And I'm talking about the saints in your church. People you sit with, that you worship with, that you go to classes or Bible studies with or labor in other ministry projects or uh, maintenance, whatever it is. Do you love the saints? John 13, 34 to 35, Jesus said this. Uh, it's a new commandment. Remember, he was there when they gave the first ten to Moses because he's God. So he gave a new one. John 13, 34 to 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And, and look at by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so Jesus, uh, even in that commandment, the way that people are going to know that the gospel is true is that we're unified and we love each other. And I love coming here because we feel at home when we do, because we're with people that love the Lord and love to sing and love to preach, and it's just it's a blessing to be among you. But it's a, this is important for us all to think about because we get comfortable. And our last one, number three. Are you committed, Acts 2.42, to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers? Are you committed to the apostles' teaching, the word of God? Do you have time for it? Do you take time for it? Is it a priority in your life? You want to be unified? Spend time in the book. Hear what God says about your day and about your, your values and your priorities. Are you committed to the apostles' teaching and then the fellowship, the breaking of bread and the prayers and spending times with the saints? It's interesting there in Acts 2.42, it actually begins with the words that they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship the breaking of bread, and the prayers. That we all may be one, Jesus prayed. It's interesting, and Dr. Truman, in that book that he wrote, he gets down to the end of it. He's done all this evaluating and laid out. Here we are today. Here's In his evaluation, historically, these thinkers, here's how we got to this day without, to where we have the confusion that we have. We can't even identify who's a man and who's a woman. And he, he spent all this time evaluating, and so he didn't do a lot of, here's how I think we should move forward. He gave some preliminary thoughts. Maybe, maybe someday he'll write more on the subject. But on, on the way forward, some things to help us remember. One of the things he says, the Christian faith is first and foremost doctrinal. It is a doctrinal faith. We need to understand the rudiments and the basics of the truth of the Word of God so that we can identify truth when we hear it and, and uh, what's not true when we hear that. 
So the Christian faith is first and foremost doctrinal. So in light of that point one, what he just shared, Christian community is of paramount importance for learning the truth. Now, I love to read and to study, and I spend quite a bit of time doing that. Sometimes my wife will say, can you read a little less and we'll go do something else? (laughs) Uh, So I I love that, and and of course we all should be in Bible study and, and those kinds of things. But it's in community. Now, you think of the Bereans, and they're in Acts 17. Uh, Paul uh, has been pushed out and uh, sent to, or he, he finds his way to Berea. And the text mentions the fact that the Bereans are more noble because they're going to examine the scripture to see if these things are true that Paul uh, shared with them. So he comes into town, he goes, goes into the synagogue, and he has an opportunity to teach as a visiting rabbi. And so he teaches and then when he leaves, they examine the scriptures to say, did what we just heard, that's different. Is that even true? How do you think they did that? See, I might go home and open up some of my commentaries and my Bible and do some reading and, and study and all that, but they didn't have any of that. Probably one in a thousand maybe had a copy of the Bible. Maybe. They're all handwritten, extremely expensive. In the synagogue, there was a special place for the text. And they kept it in the scrolls in there. And when they pulled out the text, all the people stood up because God is going to speak. So what do you think happened? Paul leaves. You can see the elders, they pull out the text. They read every text that Paul referenced. And then together in community, they look at it and they see if the connections are right. Did Paul teach us truth or not? See, the noble Bereans, they studied the Word of God in community. I'm encouraging you, spend time together studying the Word of God. That's the point. Organizational unity is related to what we've been talking about, but it's not the same thing. This is unity that's based in the Word of God, based in rebirth in Christ.